Greetings in Jesus' name this morning. It's been a real blessing to be here. I was uh, kind of planning to make a comment on Alan's remarks this morning too about uh, groaning about the weather. Um, the sun was actually shining this morning, early this morning. So one of the privileges of being a preacher is you get to get up early on Sunday mornings and uh, get to see the sun shine a little bit before it rains. Yeah, the sunrise was beautiful. It was the sun shone for about 20 minutes and then the clouds came in and and it uh, got a little rainy again. But anyway, we can rejoice and be glad in this day. I'm, I'm glad for that. Uh, for a message this morning, I'm planning to uh, preach on one of the fruits of the Spirit. And you can turn with me to Galatians chapter 5 to begin. Galatians chapter 5, and I'll begin reading in verse 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to another, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. The, the fruit of the Spirit that I'd like to speak on this morning is the fruit of gentleness. And I'm not sure exactly what inspired me to, uh, to preach on this subject. Um, one thing that partially, I believe, got me to thinking this way down in Thompson Town, or just the other side of Thompson Town along 322, there's a billboard that has caught my eye when I drive down through there, and it has these words on it. I'm sure some of you have probably seen it. It says, when push comes to shove, don't. That's uh, the words of the billboard, and, and the, um, the company or the organization that, that puts these billboards out, I looked up their website, just curious... They, they have them around. You see other ones, uh, kind of an inspirational type of billboard, but they're, they are an organization that makes no claims to any kind of religion, any kind of uh, political agenda. Uh, I'm not sure what their purpose is, but some of their billboards are good and they're worth reading. Some of them, not so much, but... Anyway, that one caught my eye, and, and I just thought it's an unusual perspective 
coming from a worldly organization, coming from from society like that. People who are not Christians generally, when push comes to shove, they will push and they will shove and they will fight to get everything they can. It's not natural to give in. It's not natural to to be meek and gentle. But most people, for them it comes very natural to push and to shove to get what they want when the opportunity comes. Most people will operate in a self-assertive way rather than in a yielding, gentle kind of way. Now, on that billboard, that, that was kind of the good side of the billboard. The, the, the negative side of it is underneath those letters, in smaller letters, it says, underneath those words, I should say, in smaller words, it says, um, it says, when push comes to shove, don't. And then it says underneath that, um, civility is in you. So the, the appeal to be gentle and to be, to yield rather than pushing one's own way is, is an appeal to some kind of inner civility, some kind of uh, inner power that we have within ourselves to do what is right. Uh, and I, I don't know what you think about that. I, I suppose everybody in the world has the can choose to be civil and kind and courteous and respectful to some degree. But if that person is relying solely on some kind of inner civility to win the battle against the natural desires of the flesh, we all know what's going to happen. The battle against the flesh is going to be lost. The flesh is going to win that battle most times. And so here in Galatians chapter 5, Paul gives us the reason, the real power, the real motivation that we can have to live and to do what is right. He says, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It is only the power of the spirit of God by which we can overcome the flesh. We cannot fight the flesh with the flesh. So the world promotes this idea that man is naturally good and it's, it's a false idea. It's contrary to what the Scripture tells us. It's contrary to what God says about us. God says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one, and there is no way that we can live up to God's standard of righteousness without the power of the shed blood of Jesus Christ and without the power of His Holy Spirit living within us. There is no other way. There, there is no inner civility powerful enough in anybody to come under the righteousness of God, to live under the righteousness of God. So, as we think about this, that's kind of a, a springboard to, to go off of in thinking about this fruit of the spirit of gentleness. Just a few simple definitions. To be gentle is to be kind, is to be amiable. It's a synonym would be to be docile, um, free from harshness, sternness, or violence. Some of the definitions from Strong's are equity, mildness, moral excellence, goodness, and kindness. I like to think this morning a bit about the source of gentleness. Gentleness is a fruit, it's a trademark, it's a characteristic 
of the Spirit of God. 1 John 3, 9 says, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him. The Spirit of God is the seed of God that is planted within our hearts at conversion. The seed does not lie dormant in our lives, but it it grows. It It brings forth fruit. It bears fruit. Gentleness is a fruit of that seed of God within us. Since gentleness grows from the seed of God and is a fruit of the Spirit, we can know that gentleness is an attribute of God. God is a gentle God. And we talk a lot about God's love and mercy and grace and His omnipresence and His omniscience, but not sure if I've ever heard a sermon on the gentleness of God. God is portrayed in the Scriptures as the Sovereign, the Almighty, the Ruler of the universe, the Creator, the Righteous Judge. But we also see a picture of Him in the Scriptures as a gentle Father, the the gentle Father. The Father who runs to meet and welcome the prodigal son home. The Shepherd who leads us beside the still waters the friend who walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death, the provider who prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies, the healer who anoints us with oil, the one who is long-suffering, gracious in mercy, quick to forgive. Some scriptures that give us a picture of the gentleness of God. Psalm 103, verse 13, Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear Him. Isaiah 40.11 He shall feed His flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with His arms and carry them in His bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. Isaiah 42.3 A bruised reed shall He not break and the smoking flax shall He not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. And then Zechariah 2.8 For thus saith the Lord of hosts, after the glory hath he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you. For he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. Now I don't know about you, but my eyes I consider to be a very, very valuable asset, a very precious part of my body. And I probably treat my eyes with more respect and with more... uh, care than most parts of my body because we know how valuable it is to be able to see. God says that the church is the apple of His eye. And if you touch the church, you're touching the apple of His eye. God treats His people with that kind of gentleness like the gentleness that we treat our eyes with. That's a little about the gentleness of God. And one of the portraits that we have of Jesus in the Scriptures is Him as the Lamb of God. Jesus is our greatest example of gentleness. And I believe there are several reasons why why God chose Jesus to be represented as a lamb. The Passover required a lamb or a goat of the first year. And I suspect that the lamb was probably the most common animal used in the sacrifices. But there's also another factor that enters into Christ being depicted as the lamb of God. 
and that is the fact that sheep are mild and gentle animals. There's hardly an animal more gentle, more docile than a sheep. They, they just, that's just their nature. Isaiah 53 verse 7 says about Jesus, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And we can look at Jesus' life and how he demonstrated gentleness over and over again. Just a few from, from just the period of his time when he went through his arrest and trial and crucifixion. When the band of men came to arrest Jesus, he went to meet them and he asked them whom they seek and they fell over and so on. And then Peter decided he's going to stand up and fight for Jesus. And he took out his sword and he swung that sword, I believe, with the intention to kill. And he swiped the ear off of one of the high priest's um, servants. Malchus was his name. Jesus touched that ear and he healed it again. Gentleness. Later on, when Peter denied Jesus and the cock crowed three times, just like Jesus had prophesied to Peter that it would, as Luke tells us that Jesus turned and looked upon Peter. The Lord turned and looked upon Peter. And I believe it was a look, not a look of reproach, not a look of um, correction, but a look of compassion and a look of gentleness. Right in the middle of his persecution and his trial, when they falsely accused him and mocked him, he answered not a word. He was like, Dumb like a sheep before her shearers, as Isaiah says. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do as they nailed him to the cross. And then as he was dying, he remembered his mother. He said to John, Behold your mother. Even in the middle of that intense suffering, being crucified, his thoughts were for her. So Jesus demonstrated gentleness. Gentleness is also demonstrated in the Holy Spirit. In 1 Kings 19, we read the account of Elijah running from Jezebel. He went to Horeb. He was hiding out in a cave there and waiting, I guess, to see what he should do. And, and God came down to talk to Elijah. But first there was a wind, a powerful wind. And it says that God was not in the wind. And then there was a, an earthquake, but God was not in the earthquake either. And then there was a fire, but God wasn't in the fire. And finally, it was followed by a still small voice, which I believe was the Spirit of God speaking to Elijah. That is how the Spirit speaks to us in a soft, gentle, yet powerful way. The Spirit generally does not force Himself on us, but speaks in a gentle, persuasive, and convincing way. Now, this is the day of Pentecost. This is Pentecost Sunday. It's not the day of Pentecost, but it's Pentecost Sunday. And um, when, this, when the Spirit of God came down to the group of believers at Pentecost, it says there was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And there was tongues of fire sitting on their heads. And, and the Spirit of God does at times work in powerful ways 
that are demonstrated um, in, in very dramatic ways. But many times, the Spirit of God speaks to us in a, sm in a still, gentle voice. Now, the rest of the message, I like to think about what does gentleness look like? How is it expressed in our lives? And perhaps I will begin by speaking to us as pastors. Um, the scriptures talk to us about gentleness, and I speak, first of all, to myself. But not only to pastors, not only to to us who are called to the ministry, and, and but but anyone, all of us, who are in any kind of leadership position. All authority comes with the temptation to be self-assertive and to push and to shove and to manipulate to get what I want. That's the world's method of authority. It's not the way of God's kingdom. In Luke 22, Jesus said to His disciples, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. That belongs out there, he said. It's the kings of the Gentiles. And they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. He that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. Turn with me, with me to uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. First Thessalonians chapter 2 Paul gives us some words of wisdom here he's speaking to the Thessalonians and to us today beginning in verse 1 for yourselves brethren know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain but even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as ye know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time use we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. As ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father doth his children, that ye would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. Now Paul uses two word pictures here to show how he related, he and his, uh, whoever was ministering with him, 
related to the Thessalonians. Verse 7, he says, We were gentle among you as a nurse cherisheth her children. And in verse 11, We exhorted and comforted and charged as a father doth his children. And Paul says, in, in my own words, what Paul, I believe, is saying here is, is we did not come to you asserting ourselves and pushing our own agenda, seeking any glory from anybody, but we came with the gospel of Jesus Christ, willing to sacrifice our own lives, our own comforts, just like a nurse sacrifices and gives her life, gives herself for the children in her care. You were dear to us, he says. You, we labored night and day because we cared about you. We, we gave you of ourselves, our own souls, he says. And we did not want to be chargeable to you in any way. When we gave correction and exhortation, we did it as a father gives it to his children. That's a lesson for me. And hopefully to all of you, all of us, especially those of us who are in leadership positions, even as fathers in our homes. Gentleness, sacrifice, meekness, humility, these character traits make leadership effective and powerful. Sometimes we preachers get all excited about preaching and proclaiming the, doc the, the right doctrine and truth, and we need to. It's our responsibility to do that, to proclaim the gospel and to proclaim truth and to teach it, and to be stewards of the gospel. But if we're missing these other things in our lives, we're going to hurt our message. We really are. We must speak the truth in love, as Paul tells us in Ephesians. Speaking the truth in love. And, and as I mentioned, this can apply to us as fathers in relating to our children. Every one of you fathers can be sure that your children are going to make a direct connection between the truth that you're trying to teach them and the character that comes out of your life. When they hear truth and correction coming from you within the context of gentleness and sacrifice and humility, it will be powerful. Too many times in my own life, I can be strong on truth and correction and short on gentleness and humility. And I ask you to pray for me. Let's pray for each other. Gentleness is one of those things, one of those character traits, one of the fruits of the Spirit that goes a long way toward making and maintaining good relationships. You just can't go wrong with gentleness when it comes to relating to people whether it's your spouse or whether it's your neighbor or whether it's your coworker or your brother or sister in the church. When, when we practice and exhibit gentleness, when that's what's coming out of our lives, it, it's, it's attractive. It's, it's, it, it builds positive relationships. It draws people together. Be gentle. Be nice. Be kind. It works. It, it's so simple, yet it works. So well, um, the proverb, the, the very common proverb that's so simple and yet so true. A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. 
You've all experienced that, I'm sure you have, or at least seen it work. You know, we, we, we deal with people who get upset and get irate about things in the world today. Most times, all it takes is a soft answer, a display of gentleness on our part, and things are completely turned around. And, and it can be so much so different if you come with the attitude of resistance and, and I'm going to stand my ground and this is what I believe and so on can be so, so completely different. One of the most valuable things that Anabaptist churches have, in my opinion anyway, and I, I, I don't think it's just my opinion, is brotherhood accountability and church discipline. We value accountability to each other. We believe Matthew 18 works. We believe no one comes to God unless he takes his brother with him. We believe it is right and good to admonish and correct each other and speak into each other's lives. Now this stuff can get intense. It can get sticky at times. It can be both hard to give and it can be hard to receive. And, and a key ingredient to making all of this work, to making this kind of interaction work where we can freely speak into each other's lives, the key ingredient is gentleness, whether you're on the giving or the receiving end. Galatians 6, verse 1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. And James says in chapter 3 of James, verse 17, But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. When you are the one giving correction or reproof, you must go in the spirit of meekness and gentleness. And there's two things to remember, I believe, as we do that, as, as hard as it is sometimes, I believe we, we should do it, but we need to do it with the right spirit. And there's two things to remember, and that is go with the same attitude that you would want a brother to come to you to correct you. Use that same attitude. And then also remember that you are prone to mistakes, just as prone to mistakes as your brother or your sister, and sooner or later they are going to need to come to you and return the favor and, and correct you. So those are two things that we can remember. When, when we're on the receiving end of correction or, rebe or rebuke, James says, be easy to be entreated. Be approachable. Let, let people come to you. Now, our natural response to correction, my natural response is, is to just defend myself and to bristle and, and immediately... Uh, Stand my ground and defend myself. Let's leave the bristling to the porcupines. You know, they, that, they're the most unapproachable animal that there is. That's what they do. As soon as something comes close to them, they flare their quills and they bristle and they, come bec they become completely unapproachable. Graciously accepting correction, even if it is given in the wrong spirit, even when it's not done perfectly, 
is almost supernatural. But we have the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit living within us. I like to think a bit this morning between gentleness, the connection between gentleness and non-resistance. I just recently finished listening to a set of CDs from the 2018 Anabaptist Identity Conference. And part of the program that they had this year was a series of talks on how the Amish and Mennonites fared with non-resistance during the American wars. They had a brother give a talk on the Anabaptists, the, the Amish and Mennonites, and non-resistance during the Revolutionary War. And another brother talked about the Civil War. And another one gave a, a message or two on uh, World War One and World War Two, and so on. I, was, I found it very, very interesting. There was a lot of history and a lot of fascinating stories. And many times, well, sometimes at least, when the Anabaptists stood on the doctrine of non-resistance and refused to fight, as they believed Jesus called them to, most times they were, they were, they were granted some kind of exemption or CO status from fighting, but it did not come easy. There was lots and lots of persecution that, that we tend to forget about. There was, there was mocking. They faced ridicule and mocking and, and persecution for the things that they believed. And another thing that, that happened so often, and this was, this was eye-opening to me, is um, the government and the people around the Anabaptists, when the Anabaptists in the time of war said, they, we can't fight. And they began to stand on non-resistance. The Anabaptists and the people who lived among them began to watch their lives to see if their lives were consistent with what they are saying they believe. They scrutinized their lives. They saw their inconsistencies. They saw that the fruits of their lives did not always line up with their claims of being peace-loving and non-resistant people. And uh, one example of that... Um, during the Civil War, there was a senator in Lancaster County who was a very, very much of a pro-war senator, senator, and he was uh, he was highly in favor of Lincoln's declaration of war and all of that, or of of the of Lincoln's doings and the the, the war, and he was also very adamant in um, granting the Anabaptist people. CO status and 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 uh, giving them grounds for their non-resistance. He he fought for them in Washington. He stood up for them. And the interesting thing is that the it was the Mennonites and the Amish who helped put him back into office during the war. They voted for him. And the Democrats and the people who were opposed to the war, they saw the hypocrisy of that and they called them out for it in the newspapers, in the media. They said, here you are, people who are saying you can't fight, you're non-resistant, and yet you are the voting block that put this pro-war senator back into office. And they said it doesn't make any sense. And they were right. They were very right. So they're going to see those things. If we are 
hypocritical if we are living our lives and it's, it's, I'm thankful that we, as far as I know, don't vote. I think that's, that's just the, uh, the right stance to take. But, but they are going to watch our lives. And if we are living in self-assertive ways and we have problems with getting along with our neighbors because we stand for our rights and we don't practice gentleness and meekness and sacrifice, they are going to see those things and they're going to see the hypocrisy of us claiming to be non-resistant people. The point that, that I think we, we must remember is that non-resistance begins within a person's heart and character. It's much more than a doctrine that we adhere to and talk about. It is the way that we live our lives every day, whether it's war or not. We practice non-resistance. We, we live... Non-resistance begins with personal integrity. It's, it's humility. It's um, living in gentleness and meekness and humility toward all men. Titus chapter 3, Paul says, Put them in mind to be subject to principalities. Now he's talking to us. He's talking to Titus, who's a, a minister, and he's saying, tell your people this. So I'm telling you this this morning. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. If that is the testimony of our lives, then we are ready to tell the government that we are a non-resistant people, but not until that is the testimony of our lives. Now, just a, a story from the Old Testament in closing. Back in 1 Kings chapter 12, we know the story how that Solomon died and he gave his kingship, his the throne to his son Rehoboam. And maybe I'll just take time to read that of some of that. 1 Kings chapter 12. And Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel were come to Shechem to make him king. And it came to pass, when Jeroboam, the son of Nebad, who was yet in Egypt, heard of it, for he was fled from the presence of King Solomon, and Jeroboam dwelt in Egypt, that they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the congregation of Israel came and spake unto Rehoboam, saying, Thy father made our yoke grievous. Now therefore make thou the grievous service of thy father and his heavy yoke which he put upon us lighter and we will serve thee. And he said unto them, Depart ye for three days, then come again. And the people departed. And King Rehoboam consulted with the old men that stood before Solomon his father while he yet lived and said, How do you advise that I may answer this people? So he went to the older folks first, the people who were alive and, and with Solomon, and were his advisors, and so on. And they spake unto him, saying, If thou wilt be a servant unto this people this day, and wilt serve them, and answer them, and speak good works to them, then they will be thy servant forever. So they said, Be their servant, speak good words to them, minister to them, answer them 
serve with gentle with gentleness is is really what he was saying. But he forsook the counsel of the old men which they had given him and consulted with the young men that were grown up with him and which stood before him. And he said unto them, What counsel give ye that we may answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, Make thy yoke which thy father did put upon us lighter. And the young men that were grown up with him spake unto him, saying, Thus shalt thou speak unto this people that spake unto thee, saying, Thy father hath made our yoke heavy, but make thou it lighter unto us. Thus shalt thou say unto them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's loins. And now, whereas my father did laid you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father hath chastised you with whips, and I will chastise you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day as the king had appointed, saying, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people roughly and forsook the old men's counsel that they gave him. And and he went on and, and spoke to them the way that the young men told him to speak to them. And we know the disastrous results of that. The kingdom of Israel split. The nation of Israel split. <coughs> and there was there was consequences for that the rest of the of of israel it, it was and I, I know this the scripture tells us here that it was of the lord that god was punishing israel for their sin but think about how much better it would have been if rehoboam would have followed the advice of the elders and used the approach of gentleness instead of the rough hardline approach that he used the outcome would have been certainly completely different. Gentleness works. It builds relationships. It brings reconciliation. And it is often the difference maker in the outcome of a situation. This made history. It affected the history of Israel. It affected the nation of Israel for the rest of their lives, the rest of their, their time. <clears throat> All because... He chose to rule with a rough and a heavy hand instead of using gentleness. Jesus was the Lamb of God. We are His sheep. We're not lions or wolves. The Scriptures doesn't depict us as that. It says we are His sheep. Lowly, gentle sheep. Not something impressive, not something fierce like a lion or a wolf, but lowly, gentle sheep, wise as serpents and harmless as doves. That was, that's what Jesus exhorted us to be. But, you know, there was a, there's the book of Revelation depicts the Lamb of God as the victorious Lamb of God and Jesus live this life in gentleness and in meekness and in humility. But in the end, He has overcome. And we're going to stand with Him. Revelation tells us that there is on, um, behold a, and lo, behold a lamb that was slain stood on Mount Zion. And there was 144,000 with Him. And I believe those people represent the ones who are washed in the blood of the Lamb. And though we live our lives in gentleness and peace and humility and meekness, we are going to, at the end, reign with Him forever. Gentleness will win. Let's kneel for prayer.